Welcome to The Boiling Frog, where we contemplate the intersection of politics, economics, psychology, history, and science. I'm Mark Olbert. And I'm Seth Rosenblatt. Seth, after our last podcast, when we discussed things we're hopeful about, we said we'd shift back to our normal state of affairs, which means pessimism, because we're all about amphibians not realizing they're being cooked. Well, that's a depressing way to start off this podcast, Mark. <laughs> well, here's a, here's a way we can build on that. Let's talk about taxes. After all, what can be more depressing than talking about taxes? <laughs> well, yes, everybody hates taxes, but actually understanding what taxes really are and why we employ different types is actually a pretty fascinating subject. Uh, I don't know. My view on taxes always starts with Benjamin Franklin's famous quote, in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. <laughs> so our job, therefore, today is to make talking about taxes fun, or at least <laughs> a little interesting. And it's so interesting, we ended up having to make this our first two-part podcast. We'll start by exploring the various types of taxes that exist, who levies them and who pays them, and the characteristics of each. It's important to note that each kind of tax has its pros and cons, which have nothing to do with what people think of as the main issue about any tax, which is always the discussion about how high the tax rate is. In our next podcast, we'll get into the impact of differing tax rates, how we got to our current system, and discuss some of the sometimes unanticipated consequences of the tax policy choices that we make. But before we get into the details of the various types of taxes, I think we should spend a minute talking about something even more basic. Namely, why are taxes necessary at all? That's a great question, because you might think, particularly in a community relying on market capitalism, where you buy what you need and sell what you create, it's not obvious why the things that governments do have to be funded in a different way. Well, and that's the central thesis of our libertarian friends, right? <laughs> that's true. The key thing to keep in mind about any tax system is that they're never designed from scratch. They just grow and evolve over time as communities, their economic power, and their needs change. We'll talk more about that in the second part of this podcast. That said, we need to remember what you and I discussed in our very first podcast, which is that laissez-faire economics doesn't always work on its own, and certainly not in all situations. Because there are public goods, externalities, natural monopolies, structural unemployment, as well as the need to minimize the friction in the movement of information, capital, and labor. So some kind of central authority is required to administer rules and to make the relevant investments to make capitalism more efficient. And that authority needs resources to do its job. And that's where taxes come in. And also, as we discussed, there are certain types of investments that are beyond the scope of, or at least lack an incentive by, privately owned organizations. And by having the government pursue these investments, at least in the early stages, it, that opens doors that would otherwise remain closed. The internet that we're using right now to record this podcast being a perfect example of that. <laughs> That's right. So it's easy for most rational people to agree that we need taxes of some sort. But political discussions around taxes tend to be very reductive. Good versus bad, high versus low, etc. We really need to get into the nuances of the many different ways government entities can take our money if we're to have any kind of rational discussion about taxes. So let's start off by talking about who taxes whom, the taxing authorities and the taxable entities, because it's a bit complicated and we tend to ignore these complications when discussing tax policy. Like we said in the intro, these aren't designed systems, but instead evolved over time as community and political needs changed. In the U.S., that evolution has also been significantly impacted by our federalist system, which divvies up public responsibilities across different levels of government. 
And that makes it fairly complicated. There are a number of taxing authorities. I mean, the first we think of, of course, is the, the federal government. Although it's worth reminding our American listeners that other parts of the world have a level above even national governments that can also create taxes. The European Union, for example. But in the U.S., after the federal government, we then think of state governments, which tax for their services. Then we have counties who provide a whole other set of services. And then we have cities who provide their own services. <laughs> we won't go into all of the services that each of these government agencies provide, but I'm sure our listeners know what they are. Yeah, and also what many people don't realize is that there's something else called special districts that can tax as well. They're created as carve-outs for certain geographies that have a shared interest. It could be related to water management, like healthcare, even mosquito abatement, right, among many other things. We need to keep in mind, too, that there are some overlaps between these different levels of governments and their taxing authorities. For example, cities, counties, states, and the federal government each can and do provide public parks. Yeah, and lastly, there are organizations that require us to pay fees for belonging to them, which sure look and feel like taxes, <laughs> but they're not technically taxes, and these include organizations like homeowners associations. They also include things like sewer treatment systems, although communities tend to require you to join those if you want to live in a certain area, whereas living in a community with an HOA is purely voluntary. So now let's briefly review who and what gets taxed. As a general rule, we think of all residents within a jurisdiction will be the ones affected by a tax levied by the government agency in charge of that jurisdiction. But it's often not that simple. Depending on the tax, it could be people who live there, people who work there, or people who buy stuff there. For example, if you live in one state but work in another, there often are particular rules about which entity can tax you. And another big example is sales taxes, where it's paid by the person doing the transaction based on where the transaction takes place, not necessarily where they live. There are some taxes which specifically target people that don't live in the jurisdiction of the taxing agency. The most common example of those are hotel taxes, which is why hotel taxes are so popular among elected leaders. They're taxing people who can't vote against them. <laughs> exactly. But then for any specific tax, we often make exceptions for certain products, for certain people, or even certain types of transactions. And some of these exceptions are done to make taxes better align with the folks that benefit from the services provided, or perhaps to make the tax more progressive. We'll talk about that in a minute. But in many cases, these exceptions are made just for political purposes to increase public support. Many of those taxes also have exceptions for certain subgroups of people, for example, based on age or income level or something like that. That's usually done to reduce opposition to them, a classic example you and I both know about being the senior exception for school parcel taxes. Other taxes have exceptions for certain types of transactions, right? Often to make the system seemingly more fair, but sometimes just for political purposes. For example, many states exempt food and most services from sales taxes. And because the, those things are the result of arbitrary political choices, sometimes the results are equally odd. Toilet paper in California, for example, is subject to sales tax, but feminine hygiene products were only recently exempted. You know, so far, we've just been talking about individual taxpayers. Of course, many corporations also pay taxes based on a concept of having what's called a nexus within a specific jurisdiction. I mean, nexus is another complicated concept that is applied differently by different government agencies, but it generally has to do with where the business has some form of operation. But only certain types of businesses get taxed, like C-corporations. Others, like partnerships and limited liability companies, LLCs, pass their income through to their owners, who then pay the taxes. 
And that's why Ronald Reagan famously argued that there shouldn't be corporate taxes at all because it's a form of double taxation. The corporation gets taxed on their income, and then shareholders get taxed on their dividends and capital gains from that corporation. Yeah, you know, I got to say, I'm well aware of that argument, and I've always found it at least a little bit bogus. We give corporations rights as if they were individuals, so why should they be exempt from paying taxes that individuals also have to pay? Yeah, And we certainly won't get into the different types of business entities and why they're taxed differently. I mean, there is some logic to it, but there's undoubtedly some post facto rationalization as well. And no doubt a large dose of political currying. Seth, we want to talk about the pros and cons of each type of tax. But to do this, I think we need to create some kind of yardstick because it's really hard to compare things you haven't measured. Yeah, certainly. You know, although there are many dimensions to how a tax works, I think it's most straightforward to examine four main characteristics of a tax. One is its progressiveness. Two is its ease in measurement and collection. Three is the friction it adds to the capitalist system. And fourth is how it's affected by general economic cycles. Well, okay, those make sense. Let's start with the first one. When you say the progressiveness of a tax, we're not using the term progressive like we've done so many times in these podcasts, meaning comfort with change. We're talking about something else, right? Yes. It's just a term of art to describe a tax as either progressive, proportional, or regressive. It's basically a measure of the tax rate as a percentage of the income of the person being taxed. So when we speak of a progressive tax, we mean one where the higher someone's income is, the higher percentage of that income they pay in taxes. An example being, for our U.S. listeners, the increasing marginal federal tax rates that we all have to pay on our income in the U.S. That's right. And most policymakers and economists, except for the very politically conservative ones, believe that a progressive tax is generally desirable for three main reasons. I mean, it lays a greater proportional burden on, frankly, those who can afford it. And for a second, it's frankly where the money is. (laughs) And (laughs) lastly, it really minimizes distortion into the capitalist system. As the more wealthy you are, the less you spend of your marginal income anyway. You know, so we'll come back to that issue of friction, you know, in a minute. In contrast, a proportional tax, which is sometimes called a flat percentage tax, means you levy the same percentage no matter what the level of income is. And a regressive tax is one where, on a percentage basis, is actually higher for people with lower incomes. We'll come back to this, but sales taxes, for example, are often regressive because poor people spend a higher percentage of their income on necessary goods. Let's talk about that second characteristic, the ease in measurement. That's essentially about the ability to measure the thing you're taxing and how easy it is to enforce that tax and collect the money. So it must also refer to how easy it is to manipulate those measurements, how easy it is to cheat on the tax. Yeah, that's right. The very nature of certain taxes makes it easier or harder to enforce. This is more true in countries with a looser system of law and greater corruption. But even in the U.S., there are definitely taxes that are harder to enforce and to collect. I recall you saying the third measure of a tax is how much friction it adds to the system. We talked about that in our very first podcast. Despite the need for taxes, they do tend to distort market capitalism by effectively changing a price and reducing the efficiency with which resources get allocated, at least somewhat. Yes, we discussed how a tax, by definition, changes the rational economic decisions that each actor in a capitalist system must make. So that introduces what we call friction into the system. But sometimes we add friction intentionally. With taxes, we sometimes create an incentive or a disincentive impacting those very economic decisions. This could be with tariffs or sin and excise taxes, for example. Yes, and these are often fodder for intense political debate. (laughs) 
The last characteristic you mentioned was how a tax is affected by economic cycles. What did you mean by that? Generally, a government agency wants some stability in its revenue stream. No agency wants to collect a lot of money in one year and much less of the following year because most public services need to be provided in a stable manner. So it's important to note how different types of taxes are affected by the normal fluctuations in economic cycles. So the way a tax may fluctuate based on whether we're in a recession or a growth phase is an important characteristic of a tax. Yeah, exactly. With those yardsticks established, let's shift to talking about the types of taxes that are levied. My understanding is that there are three general types of them, wealth, income, and transaction taxes. Yeah, that's right. I mean, a tax can be based on what you own, which is a wealth tax, what you earn, which is an income tax, or what you buy and sell, which is some sort of transaction tax. Let's start with wealth taxes, taxes based on what you own. The one most people are familiar with are property taxes, tax based on owning a house or some other property. And those could be either a flat amount for each asset, like each parcel of land, or a percentage based on the value of the asset. And related to this are other things called tangible personal property taxes, overall wealth taxes, you know, meaning taxes that are levying on some other forms of assets that you own. We don't do a lot of that in the U.S., although there have been some proposals, like from Senator Elizabeth Warren, to do a wealth tax on high net worth individuals. And I think the other big category of wealth taxes that we do have are things called estate and gift taxes, which is about wealth that is transferred from one person to another, either through inheritance or otherwise as a gift. Looking back at our yardsticks, I think wealth taxes do pretty well on three of the four metrics. They do. First of all, a wealth tax can be very progressive. Although there isn't a one-to-one relationship between wealth and income, they are generally correlated, and taxes on wealth are often progressive relative to income. Of course, many political conservatives argue a wealth tax is another form of a double tax, as the income generated to create that wealth was already taxed. Personally, I don't buy that argument, because market capitalism runs on money moving through the system constantly. Why exempt one kind of movement from income to wealth as opposed to others? You know, and there is one major exception to its progressive nature. And that's with people who are asset rich, but income poor. The most common example are seniors or others on fixed income who have otherwise accumulated wealth throughout their life. This relates to one of the justifications for California's Proposition 13, which attacked a wealth tax. We'll get to that in our next podcast. So let's talk about the second characteristic. Wealth taxes don't really add a lot of friction into the capitalist system. You know, as we mentioned earlier, the more wealthy you are, the less you spend of your marginal income anyway. So imposing a wealth tax often doesn't change a lot of behavior. I mean, one can argue, though, that it does in an indirect way, in a sense, because a wealthy person will have less money to invest in companies, which would then theoretically use that money to create economic activity. That's the main conservative argument against wealth taxes. But I got to say, from what I've seen, the evidence there is pretty mixed. And then on the third dimension, wealth taxes aren't dramatically affected by normal economic cycles, particularly if the wealth tax is on something like real estate, which certainly can fluctuate in price, but not normally to the same extent as the overall business cycle. Which is one of the reasons why, historically, local governments have tended to rely on property taxes to fund their services. They are a relatively stable form of public income. So now, though, let's look on the negative side of the ledger, the part where wealth taxes don't work as well, because they do present a problem when it comes to measurement and collection. Because the measurements of one's wealth can vary a lot depending on a number of factors, like what do we do when the stock market fluctuates, right? Do we tax people on unrealized gains? Also, some assets are inherently hard to measure, particularly illiquid ones. Wealth measurement is also subject to lots of manipulation, as Donald Trump has so vividly shown us. 
or as we'll talk about when we discuss Prop 13, by the electorate simply decreeing that the value only gets measured based on specific events, like the sale of a property. So when it comes to proposals like Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax, it could make a lot of sense on a few of the dimensions we talk about, but there are valid concerns that would have just give a lot of incentive for cheating, particularly among the very rich who have the resources to hide assets or put them in forms that are difficult to measure. It seems like the least problematic wealth tax is one based on real estate, because at least if there are appraisal requirements, the tax values don't tend to fluctuate wildly from year to year which is another reason why the wealth tax that affects most of us are property taxes. Let's move on to everyone's favorite, if I can use that term, income taxes, a tax based on what you earn. The one we're most familiar with is the ordinary income tax. This is based on wages and other income that we may have. I mean, there are certain limited deductions where we could take those to reduce this taxable income. And there's certainly lots of complex formulas, you know, to calculate them. Which is why tax season is such a pain for most of us, because it's not that simple. Although those complications, I have to admit, are generally the result of legislative bodies tinkering with the politics of who pays what on what kind of income done, as is often the case in politics, to curry political favor. And there are other types of individual income taxes as well, right, such as what we earn from investments. And often there are different rates and different rules for these, you know, such as for dividends and, and capital gains. What about businesses, though? Well, they also pay a form of income tax for the ones that are subject to tax, as we discussed. And they pay it similar in concept to the personal income tax. But businesses often have many more deductions they can use. You know, generally, most of their expenses count as deductions for tax purposes. So they're paying taxes on their net income. Although there are also very complicated rules that businesses have to do to calculate their taxable net income, which actually can differ somewhat from their accounting net income. There are also business income taxes on what are called windfall profits. These are essentially a special income tax on a sudden windfall gain to a particular company or industry, often as the result of a, some kind of geopolitical disturbance, a war, or natural disaster that creates unusual spikes in demand or interruptions to supply. The classic example of windfall profits taxes are those that get levied from time to time against oil and gas companies for many of those reasons. And the last big category of income taxes are payroll taxes. These are specific taxes paid by both employers and employees on the amounts paid in wages. In the U.S., you may, may be most familiar with Social Security, Medicare, and disability taxes like being deducted from your paychecks. Looking back to our four metrics again, it seems to me that income taxes present more of a mixed bag than wealth taxes did. On the positive side, income taxes have the potential to be progressive, right, as we mentioned earlier, if they have increasing marginal rates like we have in the U.S. But there's an exception here, too. Some payroll taxes are actually regressive as they are capped at a certain level of income. Social Security taxes in the U.S. are a great example of this. And when it comes to measurement and collection, income taxes also fare pretty well. I mean, of course, income can be hidden and some transactions are done, you know, off the books. But generally speaking, we have a pretty good idea what these numbers are and collect the tax on them. And, and there's a burden on companies to, you know, report both of these. Specifically, items like payroll taxes are pretty easy to collect as they're done through a system that businesses must use and abide by if they expect to be allowed to continue to operate. But with income taxes, I mean, there can be and there certainly is some manipulation particularly around capital gains and corporate expenses and other items where the accounting is sort of a bit fuzzy, right? <laughs> when I was a corporate financial analyst, it seemed like about 70% of my job was creating fuzziness by assisting the tax experts in crafting clever ways to minimize taxes within the scope of the law. 
Because it's essentially impossible to audit everyone, companies and wealthy individuals who can hire experts often get away with quite a bit. Now, moving on to another characteristic when it comes to introducing friction into the system, this one is open to a lot of economic and political debate. It largely depends on the level of the tax itself. At most normal levels, an income tax introduces a relatively small distortion into the pricing system. People still have an incentive to work, but if an income tax gets high enough, it could create a disincentive to work or an incentive to cheat. But probably where income taxes fare the worst in our analysis is when it comes to how they're affected by economic cycles. In good economic times, more people work and earn money, and companies earn higher profits. In recessions, more people are unemployed, companies make less profits. So this is definitely the most cyclical form of tax revenue for governments. Let's move to the third category, transaction taxes, which are levies based on what you buy and sell. The most common and well-known are sales taxes, a tax based on a transaction of a final product or service. But as we mentioned earlier, there are many rules about what items are taxed and what items aren't, and the rules vary widely by state. For example, in the U.S., most services are exempt for, frankly, historical reasons that don't necessarily make much sense anymore. And there's a related type of transaction tax, which we don't use in the U.S., it's more common in other countries, and that's the value-added tax, or the VAT, which is a tax on goods and services that is levied at each stage of the supply chain where value is added, from the initial production to the point of sale. And that contrasts to a pure sales tax, which is only levied upon the final sale to a customer. There are also sales taxes targeted at specific goods or services, like the hotel taxes we mentioned earlier. There are also luxury taxes designed to be on items considered kind of non-essential or for the ultra-wealthy, but also these aren't very common in the U.S. Let's also not forget sin taxes, which are levies on certain items, like cigarettes and alcohol, to raise money and deal with the externalities of such sales, like the community cost of treating ill people, as well as to create a disincentive to consume the products. These sometimes come in the form of what we call excise taxes, which are sales taxes often based on quantity and not price. But it applies to things like alcohol and gasoline in particular. There are also transactional taxes called gross receipts taxes. These are essentially both an income tax and a transaction tax because they are levied against the total sales of a company, not its net income. And at least in the U.S., most of these transaction taxes are implemented on a state or local level. Like on the U.S. federal level, we don't have a national sales tax, but we tend to debate tariffs, which are taxes on imported goods, you know, either as a percentage of their cost or as a flat amount. They're generally imposed to restrict imports and often to protect a domestic industry, although most economists would argue that they have a net negative impact on the broader economy, or certainly in the long run. Lastly, there are also government fees, which aren't taxes per se, but sure look and feel like taxes to the average individual. They too tend to be transaction-based, but they're conditional, meaning they only apply to certain services and certain people. We're talking about things like highway tolls, uh, fees to get a driver's license, potentially utility costs in some jurisdictions, you know, etc. Looking back at our metrics, transaction taxes seem to be among the most easily and accurately measured and collected taxes. Like income taxes, I mean, some transactions can be done outside of the eyes of taxing agencies, but at least in most developed countries, this isn't a major concern. But transaction taxes do fall short on the other three yardsticks. For one thing, transaction taxes are generally strongly affected by economic cycles. As more or less things get bought, more or less tax gets collected. And also transaction taxes introduce a lot of friction into capitalism as they directly change the price of a good or service and therefore change the calculus that a buyer or seller needs to make. 
That's definitely true for tariffs, which are often high as a percentage of transaction value when compared to a normal sales tax. But sometimes there's another value being generated, at least for some, because it could be desirable to the community, or at least a subset of that community, to create this incentive or disincentive on goods being produced and sold within the community. That's why you often see these type of taxes levied on foreign goods, or ones like alcohol and cigarettes that the community wishes were less frequently consumed, or on products that have significant externalities, like gasoline. So there's always a risk, both a political and a practical one, of trying to introduce economic incentives into an otherwise capitalistic market. Transaction taxes tend to be one of the more powerful tools to use if you want to do that. Lastly, there's another big downside of transaction taxes, and we hinted at this earlier, is that they can be the most regressive. Which is why many taxing agencies exempt certain goods, like groceries, to make the tax more fair. Although, you know, it's an interesting side note here, Mark. Many Scandinavian countries, for example, actually rely on things like sales taxes fairly heavily, which they recognize are indeed regressive. But they combine it with an overall higher tax rate, and they find this politically more acceptable, as it's viewed as maybe more of a shared burden, as the rich don't feel like they're paying a disproportionate amount. So even though the U.S. has a more progressive tax system than Sweden, Poverty rates are higher in the U.S., in large part due to our lower overall tax rate limiting the kind of social safety net we can deploy. Yes, Sweden's choice is to be okay with a regressive tax system if the overall rate is higher to then pay for greater public services, which clearly impact lower-income people more. I have to say, this has been a lot more interesting than I thought it would be. But I think we should end it here so we don't wear out our welcome and keep people interested in tuning back in to hear more about the implications of tax policy in our next podcast. Fair enough. But at least let's summarize a few of the key takeaways to remember before turning to our next discussion. First of all, we need to remember that debates about taxes must start with discussing public goods, meaning what are we trying to accomplish as a community? Tax debates can then be focused on deciding how to fund those community programs. The problem is that most discussions around taxes revolve around false binary choices. I mean, we'll get into more nuances on that and a big case study in the next podcast. We also need to keep in mind taxes are not monolithic. There are a variety of them, all with different effects and trade-offs, so we have to adopt a portfolio perspective in our discussions of them. Always remembering there will always be interest groups opposed to or supportive of any particular element of the portfolio. If you want to have a fair tax system, I mean, you have to use multiple types of taxes at multiple levels of government since different taxes will affect different parts of our community differently. As was demonstrated today with our discussion here, because not one of the types of taxes we discussed has every desirable attribute. For example, income taxes are relatively easy to collect, can be made progressive, but they're very cyclical with the economy. And transaction taxes are easy to collect, but often regressive and add substantial friction to the capitalist system. And wealth taxes normally introduce a lower amount of friction into the system and are less cyclical, but they can be hard to measure and collect and subject to easier evasion. Even though wealth taxes are often progressive, they sometimes can engender broad-based opposition when they impact people with illiquid wealth and modest or low income. We'll discuss what is probably the best example of this in our next podcast when we talk about Prop 13. What a good teaser. <laughs> I promise our listeners this is actually more interesting than you may think. Mark, hopefully you find taxes more exciting than you did a half hour ago. I just wish all I had to worry about were those wealth taxes we discussed. <laughs> you and me both, brother. Thanks to you and uh, thanks to our listeners. Signing off until part two. This is Seth. And Mark. Reminding you to remember that unlike our former president, you need to pay your tax bill. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. See you next time. This podcast is copyright Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. 
All Rights Reserved. The Boiling Frog podcast is written, produced, and hosted by Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. Audio engineering and technical support provided by Caroline Olbert. Theme song composed by Benjamin Rosenblatt. Music arrangement and production by Mia Rosenblatt. For more information, resources, or to subscribe to this podcast, please visit our website at www.theboilingfrog.net.